electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans and a busy hour ahead of us. Starting with the markets, the Dow and the S&P are on pace for their fourth straight day of losses ahead of the Fed minutes next hour. And one economist sees things getting messy with an eye. And we're not talking about the soccer player, obviously. He'll join us to explain what this all means for your money. Plus, Apple reportedly may have to cut iPhone 13 production due to the chip shortage. So if semis are still in short supply, why aren't the stocks acting better? We'll talk to a top analyst about what their sell-off is signaling. And speaking of supply chains, the street is placing bets on who can weather the ongoing storm and who won't be so lucky. We'll debate the winners and losers ahead in rapid fire. But first, as always, Dom Chu has the number. All right. So, Kelly, what we have right now is a market that continues to be in what we've called a holding pattern, a cautious wait and see kind of mentality. And it's playing out again today. We're waiting those Fed minutes of maybe that's part of the reason why. But we're almost dead flat here for the S&P 500. 43.50 the last trade there. 14.516 the last trade for the Nasdaq Composite. A gainer today, only up about one third of one percent. And the Dow Industrials down about one quarter of one percent as well. Off the session lows, but again, a fairly tight and muted trading range today. We did, however, kick off earnings season and especially big bank earnings season The report of the day has to go to J.P. Morgan. Those shares are actually down by two and a half percent right now. Remember, they hit a record high just last week over here. J.P. Morgan comes out with better than expected profits, better than expected revenues. M&A activity really helped buoy some of the results at the investment bank to offset some of the weaker areas in trading, the growth-wise aspect in trading. So watch those. And by the way, J.P. Morgan Chase, one to watch because it is, again, one of those bellwethers for the American economy, possibly speaking. And then if you go from J.P. Morgan Chase to these other stocks, the reason why they're important, Bank of America's off one and a third percent, Citigroup off one percent, Wells Fargo down two percent. U.S. Bank on the regional bank side of things off three quarters of a percent and Morgan Stanley up half a percent. Each of these five stocks, Kelly reports their results before the opening bell tomorrow. It's going to be another big, huge day for earnings. I can only imagine what our colleague Wilfred Frost will be doing all morning tomorrow. So watch those big names. The financials still very much in focus, Kel. Back over to you. And only one in the green right now, like you mentioned, with Morgan Stanley there. Dom, thank you very much. Now, as we wait the Fed minutes due out in less than an hour, my next guests are concerned about supply chain problems slowing the economy. They have different views of how the Fed might react to that, however. Joining me now are Mark Smith, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Advisors, and Gregory Daco is Chief U.S. Economist at Oxford Economics. Welcome to you both. Greg, let's, let's start with you. You say overall this isn't stagflation, but it is messy. What do you mean by that? Yeah, we think what we're seeing is really a, a messy environment in that we're seeing moderating expansion with sticky supply-driven inflation. That's a long acronym to essentially signal the fact that there is this ongoing imbalance between strong demand, still strong demand, and supply that's taking a bit longer to come up to that demand. So we're seeing that stickiness in inflation, something that uh, is somewhat different from the pure transitory team, which is expecting inflation to fall back rapidly. And Mark, would you agree about the stickiness there? Does it contribute to your nervousness about the market overall? 
Yeah, I think that inflation could be here to stay for a while. Um, you're seeing that many sectors are having uh, inflation uh, affect prices, and I think for a while to come, uh, the consumer discretionary and all the uh, the, the energy stocks here. Uh, many top analysts are saying, you know, uh, a ninety to one hundred dollar barrel oil could be down the pike in the next year or so. And uh, it makes a lot of sense because there's not just not enough supply out there. So, um, you know, last time I checked, if you looked at a lot of economics, if there's not, not, not enough supply, prices will go up as a result of that. And so we're seeing that. And I think that it's going to really affect the consumer uh, for the next year or two to come. Let's turn to the Fed. Mark, you think that they might punt on the taper? Is that right? Yeah, you know, they definitely could because of what's going on in the employment um, uh, figures. You're saying that. They're going into the holiday season, because of the supply uh, disruptions all across the country, that it's going to affect you know, businesses that want to hire for the holiday season. If you don't have uh, items to sell in your store, why would you ramp up hiring to a big degree? And we've seen that the Fed has made uh, top employment one of their key figures in, in, in tapering and raising rates. Mm-hmm. So. Um, this fourth quarter is going to kind of really tell uh, a lot about what's going to go on um, in Washington. And, Greg, a lot of us are used to the Fed doing this, you know, over the past 10 years or so when the data worsens. They they punt on the taper. I think that's what happened middle of last decade or they reverse uh, uh, hikes and, and so forth. But your take on this is a little bit different, which is that they have to, in some ways, slow demand in this economy. And I'm curious if you think that they really will at a time when Powell himself may be up for renomination that we're going into a midterm election year with a president whose party is already, you know, grappling with their popularity. My point is, why would they take that risk of adding to any slowdown we're already seeing in the economy uh, through their own policies? Well, I think the the perspective is slightly different. Uh, The way I view it is that uh, the economy is no longer in need of extreme uh, monetary policy accommodation. We are in an environment where the economy remains quite strong. And I think the Fed has clearly telegraphed that it wants to taper starting next month and going through the middle of uh, next year. That's pretty clear. I don't think they'll move away from that. We're not in 2013 uh, in in the environment uh, of of, uh, the taper tantrum of 2013. Um, And actually, the Fed has become slightly more hawkish. I think it's somewhat concerned about the persistence of inflation that is higher than it has forecasted. Um, And there's been no pushback. And if anything, some confirmation that the first rate hike will take place in December of next year. So I think the Fed will slowly uh, adopt a more hawkish tilt. It's still got rates at zero. It's still got a very accommodative uh, stance on the monetary policy front. Uh, But it will start to signal somewhat of a more hawkish stance that will lead to tighter financial conditions and have a dampening effect on economic momentum. And Mark, as you point out, we should you know keep in mind this is all happening on the monetary side and on the fiscal side. The fate of these big spending bills is a little unclear right now. So we could go from having you know both fiscal and monetary stimulus up until this point of the COVID recovery to maybe having both of them taken away. What do you think the sort of risks are around the spending bill? Yeah, the, the risk is that the market has been used to a lot of this uh, free money flowing for the last year and a half. And so the last piece and the last leg of this is this, you know, possibly $2 trillion uh, infrastructure deal. Uh, and I, and it, it could keep the market afloat for now. But if all of a sudden we say that that's not going to happen, that's not on the table, and then you've got uh, uh, tapering who's going to start impossible, you know, rates going up next year, 
you know, I think that that's a lot of negative news for the markets to digest all at once. And uh, that could that could spell a correction uh, like many are predicting. Yeah. And we still have several weeks, I think, if not longer, to figure out what that fate will be. Guys, thank you both this afternoon. Mark Smith and Gregory Dago talking us thank through you. these markets. And while it may Thanks. be a messy season, so to speak, for retail spending, a new study highlights the name's best position to benefit from the longer term spending power of millennials and Gen Z. 60% of consumers are aged 18 to 40 now, and that's expected to grow to 70% by 2028. The group is already having an outsized impact on retail, so where are they spending? Cowan finding Nike still dominant in several categories, while Lululemon made the biggest jump in their annual survey, up 30% among favorite brands. But it's where and how consumers are finding brands that we see some big changes, with nearly half of shoppers buying secondhand on sites like Poshmark, more than 60% using off-price retail like TJ Maxx, and half of users buying brands they discovered on TikTok. For more, let's bring in John Kernan, the lead on Cowan's report. John, what's the biggest uh, investing implication for you? Yeah, there's huge implications across the entire consumer sector. We published this report with nine other Cowan analysts. It's really the most unique data set on Wall Street regarding variance between younger and older consumers. I think the big macro takeaway is the biggest wealth transfer in history is underway. There's $60 trillion in assets that will transfer to Gen Z and millennial consumers over the next several decades. So their spending power will massively increase. And there's also obviously, as you, you just spoke on, a lot of micro takeaways as well as it relates to companies and themes. Sure. And we're showing Nike, Lululemon, TJ Maxx. I all mentioned those are stocks you're positive on. Yes, they all showed really strong gains year over year in the survey. We have a time series now, four years of this data of survey, surveying younger consumers. Lululemon stood out as the biggest gainer among the younger consumers in terms of brand preference. Nike still has a huge lead in the categories it remains dominant in, in sneakers and apparel. And then social commerce, which my colleague John Blackledge covers, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, they showed huge gains in users and huge gains in purchasing patterns among younger consumers on those social platforms. So big themes. Those are the big themes that we saw. And normally Facebook would be the investing implication, but I think they, uh, you know, face totally bigger challenges right now. TikTok, obviously, I don't know how you invest in that unless you have any ideas about which brands that might favor. Well, social commerce has huge implications across retail and consumer because the power of these platforms, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, the average revenue per user metrics at Snapchat were up 76% year over year. Last quarter, they were up 46% at Facebook. So wow. the, the power that these platforms have now and the network of users they have the pricing power for their advertising has become much, much more expensive. So the customer acquisition costs across retail digitally are becoming much more expensive. It really now favors brands with scale digitally. We talk about, we talk about that quite a bit in the report. And maybe if this is a choppy retail season, it could offer some opportunities for people to get in on names that you think kind of have secular staying power. Are there any smaller names that you think are worth highlighting here? Many of these are already large incumbents. Yeah, sure. Well, supply chain concerns have led to a rapid repricing of risk in the sector. Valuation multiples are down on average 15 to 20 percent in the sector, really just in September. That's the first correction we've had wow. really this year. So there's some cheaper stocks out there. Burlington stores, an off-price retailer, uh, roughly $15 billion market cap is one we think earnings can double over the next five years. And Decker's Brands, which is about a $10 billion market cap, we think earnings can double there as well. Decker's owns UGG, right? Yes, they own UGG and Hoka. 
Hoka right now caught up in a lot of supply chain disruption coming out of Vietnam. So a final word on this, John, before we go, is people, again, might be reassured about buying some of the names that this favors in the long run. What do you think is going to happen in the next eight weeks now? How much, you know, are the stocks pricing in too much disruption? You know, modeling this space right now is incredibly difficult. Uh, the conversations we have with buy-side investors, there's incredibly low risk tolerance to this, for this space right now just because of the amount of uncertainty. I don't think any of this supply chain inflation is necessarily transient. There's going to be input costs, transportation costs, inflation into next year. Every piece of the supply chain is seeing inflation, whether it's the trucks, the ports, the, the ships. Uh, everything right now is inflationary, and is, there isn't some magic wand necessarily on January 1st that resets everything. So a lot of inflation, a lot of uncertainty. I think people need to be opportunistic, but recognize there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. In the next Yeah, weeks. the president himself meeting with a lot of leading retailers right now uh, to try and sort this out. John, thanks for your time today. It's great to Thank have you. you and to go through the results of this study. Again, John Kernan of Cowan. Coming up, Apple is reportedly slashing its production targets for the iPhone 13 in light of those supply chain disruptions. We'll look at other names that are most at risk as a result. And speaking of the supply chain, Signet Jewelers getting an upgrade from B of A after hiking its full year guidance, in part because it's avoiding some of those freight bottlenecks. Shares have tripled since January and are up more than 1,300 percent from their pandemic lows. We'll have more after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Even the world's biggest companies aren't immune from supply chain woes, with Apple reportedly cutting its iPhone 13 output due to the chip shortage. What could this be telling us about supply and demand in the chip sector? Joining me now is Stacey Raskin, Senior Semiconductor Analyst at Bernstein. Stacey, it's great to have you back. The simple story is, wow, the chip shortage is really bad. And the more complex story is, why is the SMH 10% off its recent highs, down for the third straight week, and below its 200-day moving average as of yesterday? Yeah. So, I I mean, look, so one thing the Apple uh, uh, story does tell you, it does sort of bring home the extent of the shortages. Apple is probably the largest uh, purchaser of semiconductors on the planet. Um, They tend to get their needs fulfilled when they need them. And so if they're actually having shortages, it sort of drives that home. I'd say broadly for the sector, though, there's a real debate going on right now. This whole idea of kind of like, are we close to peak cycle Mm -hmm. versus are things going to be stronger for longer? And it's sort of funny, you know, from a fundamental standpoint, the stronger for longer has sort of been right. I mean, numbers have been really good and 
demand has been super strong. And, and frankly, I'd say it's already lasted longer than a lot of people thought. I'd say from a sentiment standpoint, however, it, it's the peak cycle, which, which has been winning out over the last several weeks. And, and obviously, the, 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 the semi-stocks have been down. The issue is really around the sustainability of this demand. Um, normally, what happens, and you know, I've, I've, we've talk, probably talked about this on the show before. Mm-hmm. Normally, what happens in periods of very strong demand when customers cannot get the parts they want is they tend to order more. It's the toilet paper situation from last year sort of writ large across the industry. And, you know, and the tighter things get, the stronger demand looks because people are even more. So we actually don't know how much of the current demand profile, which is very, very strong. We don't know how much of it is real right. and how much of it is phantom. And we're not going to know that answer for a while. But I'd say that sort of peak cycle sentiment is what's been um, kind of bringing the, the sector back. Well, and we stuff. talked to you about a week and a half ago when you downgraded NXP yeah. because of your concern that they might be overshipping autos to 30 to 40 percent right now. Again, hard to tell what demand yeah, is. We'll, we'll see the industry. NXP. I'm sorry. Not and absolutely the industry, which, you know, I'm thinking about this from a macro point of view, not so much as it relates to them. But, you know, if that's true in autos, you talked about some uh, maybe similar numbers in laptops. My question would be, are those two sectors uniquely possibly at peak or past peak? Or what would you say about other areas? You know, because every and you know this every day we bring on people who say it's stronger for longer. This, you know, they still have room to run. But it probably depends on, on the end market, at least with autos and PCs. Those are end markets where you can start to get a handle on it because you can get decent data on semi shipments and decent data on, on end, end market shipments, PCs or cars or whatever. And so you can do the math. There are some end markets, for example, industrial. It's, it's not an end market. It's hundreds of end markets and, you know, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of products and hundreds of thousands of customers. There's no there's no real good way to get a handle on, on that. But for auto and PCs, we can kind of get some idea. I would say at least for smartphones, you know, it, it's a little bit different. People have actually been worried about the opposite, that, that end demand for smartphones has been weak, right? And it has been. People worried about China builds and, and, and everything else. And at least there, I would say that smartphones have been weak for a while. Like, it's not new. They did not benefit from COVID. And so, you know, at least at a minimum, we don't have, like, some sort of massive COVID pull forward, like, in smartphones that has to be worked, worked off. So I think, like, perversely, the dynamics there are maybe slightly better than some of these other markets where – Demand is unarguably like off the charts, but at the same time, you can actually get evidence that semiconductor shipments, even relative to that, demand have been even stronger. Yeah, and we have this headline from Hyundai just in the past hour or so. Their U.S. chief says the worst of the chip shortage has passed. We've heard, you know, maybe similar comments from some of the big CEOs this week. Perversely, for the rest of the market, you know, a drop in semi prices might actually be a good thing if it signals some normalization. But we always at the same time say it's a barometer the way that it goes, the rest of the space goes. And prior to the pandemic, if you look at the SMH charts, they were trading at like 140, 150. So we're a hundred dollars above those levels. Yeah. I mean, look, you can look at valuations, by the way, for, for the sector. And I, we, I tend to look at the socks, but you can look at any index you want. Um, you know, semis relative to the overall S- S&P, like, are, are not terribly elevated. They're, they're actually at a, at a discount. They get, does tend to trade at a discount, but it was kind of normal. On an absolute basis, I'd say valuations have been elevated, but they've been elevated broadly, not just in semis. It's been sort of across the board. Um, the issue really, though, with, with all these sort of valuation metrics is still, like, you, you don't actually know what the denominator is. Like, you know the P. You don't actually necessarily know the E yet. That, that's the controversy. Is the demand profile sustainable or not? Are estimates like too high or are they too low? We, we don't know, like have a good feeling for what that E, especially on a forward basis, really ought to be yet. We're not going to know, frankly, until supply does normalize, lead time start to pull back in. And then we'll see how much of this demand is real and how much of it isn't. And if it turns out it's all real, then it, it could probably be off to the races at that point again. 
but we're not going to know un- un- until we know. Like you never, you never do. Sure. And I know, like you said, Broadcom is a favorite name of yours. Uh, it's down on this news, but maybe an opportunity uh, there for yeah. some of the other reasons that you mentioned. I, I really do like, writing, but it's not down that much. And, you know, and, and let's be honest, like, like Apple, it's probably like low double digits percentage of their revenue. Now, Broadcom actually does a fair amount, especially on the RF side for wireless. They do that manufacturing in-house. So presumably they knew what they were going to ship. And so we'll, we'll see how much of an impact it is. I like Broadcom, though. So in, in, in an industry where, where people are nervous, and, and I, maybe I am, right? Broadcom has a little bit more control and a little more visibility into their semi-industry business for a variety of reasons that we could get into, but they have more visibility there. They've got a sizable software business, which is lower volatility, higher margins, offers some support. They're going to deploy cash this year. They're either going to buy something or they're going to do a big buyback. It'll be one or the other. I'll take either. I think they're good. It's got a great dividend. The dividend is going to grow next year. That offers more support. It's got the highest margins, highest free cash on the industry by a country mile. And except for Intel, it is the cheapest thing in my coverage. Like, what's, what's not to like, especially people? <laughs> well, and with that explanation, maybe uh, the sh- fact that the shares are only down about four-tenths of one percent today on this news, uh, that helps explain it. Stacey, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, you bet. My pleasure. Thank you. Stacey Rasgun with Bernstein. Still ahead, could the IRS be spying on your bank account soon? We'll parse through the proposal from the White House and tell you what's actually on the table. Plus, Delta Airlines on pace for its worst day in a year after posting a profit in the third quarter and warning about rising fuel costs. We'll hear from the CEO about all of that ahead. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're well off the lows. The Dow was down 263 at one point earlier on, but we're now only down 43 points, while the S&P and NASDAQ are positive. The S&P by five, the NASDAQ by almost half a percent right now. And here are some of the movers we're watching. The Invesco Solar ETF is higher again for a third straight day. It's up 11 percent just since Monday, helped by rallies in SunPower, SolarEdge, and the likes. But putting these moves in perspective, the Invesco Solar ETF is still 30 percent below its January highs, had some run-up on the Biden administration there. SunPower is 50 50 percent lower solar edge, also 20 percent below its record high. Now, speaking of renewables, this isn't the only place we are seeing strength lately. Hydrogen fuel company Plug Power, we've talked about that one quite a bit here. It's up 11 percent on pace for its seventh straight day of gains after announcing R&D deals with Airbus and Philips 66. Shares are up 30 percent and 35 percent in a week. 30% in the month, Morgan Stanley upgrading the stock to buy from hold and hiking its target to $40, saying it's well positioned for a significant transition point in energy. Plug is still down about 50% from its January high, and it does have its analyst day tomorrow. And elsewhere, shares of Angie and IAC are outperforming after reporting good September growth numbers. IAC up about 13% this month. It's adding 3% today, and it's on pace to snap a five-month losing streak. Angie up 7.6%. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says that time is running short for Iran to get back in compliance with the 2015 nuclear deal. Blinken says that Washington will look at every option to deal with the nuclear challenge posed by Tehran. Dylan Roof, the first person sentenced to death for a federal hate crime, losing another round in his effort to overturn his death sentence. 
Circuit Court appeal judges have refused to hear a new petition in the case. More damage from severe storms and tornadoes that have ripped through the central U.S. At a small airport in Oklahoma, the local fire chief there says that all but one hangar was destroyed and the roof of one hangar collapsed. And the FDA putting out new guidance to drastically cut the amount of salt used by restaurants and food companies. The goal here is to reduce American sodium intake by 12 percent over the next two and a half years. I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite. Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.